0: This is Turkey, The Long View, from of English. I'm Luke Wapstik. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the hit TV show Atiye, and the ancient site that inspired it, Gobi Klitepe. When I started this podcast, I knew I didn't just want to do politics. There's so much more going on in Turkey. I want to talk about art, history, food and music, as well as refugees, earthquakes and elections. So I was really happy to find out that the new Netflix show, Atiye, gave me an excuse to talk about Gobikli Tepe. To discuss Gobikli Tepe and Atiye, I'll be joined by Lee Clare, an archaeologist, and Ozan Ajiktan, the co-director of Atiye. I don't, as a general rule, watch a lot of TV. I'll occasionally head over to Netflix for a bit of Peaky Blinders or Evangelion, but for the most part, I prefer to play computer games or read books in my downtime. Atiye is in fact the first Turkish TV show I've made it all the way to the end of. I had a go at The Protector, but yeah, it wasn't for me. However, Atiye worked. It's an interesting premise with a fantastic cast and some really cool representations of Turkey, and a very sleek art style throughout. And moreover, Turkish TV is having a kind of renaissance at the moment where people in Peru and in Korea and in Lebanon are watching shows set in Istanbul. So I was really happy to sit down with Ozan Aciktan, co-director of Atiye, to talk about the show and Turkish TV's place on the world stage. So, I'm here with Ozan Ajiktan, um in his office. Um, You're one of the directors of the new TV show, Atier. Um, Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Yeah. Um, So, fun fact, I actually saw you guys shooting. um, Because the exterior shot of Atier's apartment is right next to my apartment. Is it nice? (laughs) It is. So I I saw you guys parking all your vans and (laughs) storing your gear in my street. And and blocking your street. Yeah, sorry, I don't drive, so it's (laughs) fine for me. But I think other people were... Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. the district is quite uh, famous for these kind of locations, so uh, I guess they're kind of used to it, mm-hmm. and I think they're kind of bored about it.
0: Yeah, but bored in a kind of like, they take a bit of pride in it as well, don't yeah, they? Yeah, because like, it's the... Oh, I see that all the time, so it's no big deal to me. That's but true. But I got quite excited when I saw it, and I got super excited when I saw it in the TV show, and you I'm might. like, wait, what? That's my street. <laughs> And for the rest of the show, I just couldn't help but like inspect to see if I was in the background. <laughs> I didn't see myself though. Yeah. Oh, well, next time. <laughs> next time, call me. Next time, yeah, get, when, you, when you're shooting there, just We'll make me sure. Alright, cool. So, um, let's start off. What drew you to the Atier as a project, to begin
1: with? Um, well, there are a couple of things. Uh, first of all, it was the platform, the streaming platform, Netflix. Since it's this, uh, the biggest name in the game lately, there's a, a bit of revolution going on about the way we uh, see movies, we watch TV shows and all that. So that's the first part of it. But when they approached me first time with Hakan Muhafiz, I wasn't really intrigued by it. I was also uh, quite busy out from a feature film. So Atiyeh was not only Netflix, it was also the project. When I say the project, it involves a couple of names. One is de Tepe, obviously, because that's one of the things that is uh, not told anything about so far, uh, starting with uh, Atier in this mm-hmm. scale, I mean. So that was kind of uh, charming for me. And also Berensat's name being attached to the project uh, was also a very, very important involvement. Involvement reason for me, and I think when I read the script or when they pitched me the idea, uh, the way they connected the woman's story with the historical uh, uh, historical kind of basics, but nothing like it's just taking you know the mm-hmm. history of two, twelve thousand years ago. Uh, and all that, so we didn't really went into the history, but I think we're going to talk more over it.
0: So the show is based on a book by a single, uh single, Boybash. Um, right. So tell me, um, can you tell me a little bit about the adaptation process? How we went from a book to a script?
1: Well, I wasn't involved with the adaptation process myself, because the project was already based on, and the writers were already working on the uh, show when I joined. So I didn't really bother uh, looking at the adaptation part because I didn't feel like it was my job for the, for the time being and the, 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 uh, the period that I was about to uh, start uh, shooting. I thought of maybe I better concentrate only on the show and what I read through the script, if it translates well or not. And if I have any questions, I could also go to anyone uh who who has more information about the project uh, regarding the book and the heritage so i felt kind of comfortable with going on with what i have on the script level and the writers room which was involved uh, which which involved uh five to six uh, writers who were reading hardcore about uh, the yobik and history fantastic um
0: one of the things that i is really um incredible about the show is the art direction. I think it's probably the part I liked most, the combination of the costumes, locations, and the, um, the art in the symbols. That was beautiful. Could you um, tell me about how you went about building the art style and the mm-hmm. overall feeling of Atier?
1: So it was like, when I when I told you about what intrigued me uh, being, uh, having Beran's name and Göbekli Tepe together, of course it triggers some images with the name, uh, with the platform, streaming platform Netflix uh, on top of it. So you can understand that we're looking for something internationally interesting and also locally true mm-hmm. in one way or another. But when you're aiming for such a uh, concept, I think uh, there needs to be a design uh, element involved because it's it doesn't exist. Like, nothing we talk about is real. So, it's all fictional. So, there there's a lot of room for imagination to bind these two figures of the woman that we have as a character, the girl, and the realities of Göbekli Tepe. So, there was a big room to fill by means of imagination and how the mythical... Uh, reading of our show will be so it started with you know we said okay we're not doing a documentary Mm -hmm. we're doing a fictional uh, story we're doing fiction so the mythologies that we're going to bring will only help to have a a well paced and intriguing show uh, or interesting show for the audience so we didn't really care about uh, the realities so which means we got out of the burden of anything real or true with the history. So that gave us a lot of room for imagination. And then we start talking with our production designer, Denis Kobamba, who was uh, a a colleague of mine with whom I wanted to work for a long time. So we came together uh, and uh, created these basic concepts about this woman figuring things out in her life with the wide aspect of Turkish Anatolian uh, look. So, it was it was a lot of, you know, talks in a lot of rooms about the images and the iconography that we have, and also the script was also very rich by means of using a lot of Turkish uh, iconic mythical uh, stories one way or another. So, we were we were very uh, free and also, a reach by the resources. It's also,
0: um, it gives a pretty good impression of Istanbul as well, in that a lot of like shows that are made for foreign consumption about Istanbul, they tend mm. to focus on Grand Bazaars, yeah. uh, Hagia Sophia, this sort of area, whereas yours is very much Jihangir and these kind of places, which also reflects yeah. uh, a truth about what Istanbul's really like, which I thought was impressive.
1: Yeah, thank you. I, I'm glad you mentioned this because the when I was uh, I, I I thought of maybe not going to the details that much, but I realized that this is the time because like once you have this character, fictional character Atiyeh, and her family, and what she's gonna go through, and what and you have Gebel Tepe and everything resonating through Gebel Tepe or Anatolia. You need to, you know, you need to have some notes to play with, and these notes came out as uh, the uh, contradiction between the uh, modern life and the heritage. Time we live now and the past. So we, we based on these conflicts, main conflicts that everyone in the world are dealing with the noble and the old and all that. So we we were basically concentrating on on that. So that brought us to the Turkish daily life that we have in Istanbul, that we have a glimpse or we also live in, that we know. So that brought Jiangir, that brought Nishantashi and all that Istanbul uh, so-called modern life, let's say, like up to date at least. And then you have... Adiaman and Göbekli Tepe and Urfa, which has these yeah, yeah, Nemrut, you know, and all that. uh, Tribal, I would say, uh, in the concept of uh, the script, uh, tribal realities. So that conflict brought us the locations and our direction in that uh, way.
0: So the other part of the show that's really nice is you've got a fantastic cast. I mean, obviously it goes without saying that Berens Arts is... a massive drawing, a great actress in her own right. But we also got some really nice performances. I I particularly enjoyed the character of Ozan, the sort of the got the gutless sort of stooge and fiance. I also thought that um Sendar was a fantastic villain and that actually the, the, the relationship between the mother and father was um, was also really well done. Mm-hmm. So um Talk to me about getting performances out of the actors, how you work with them, how mm-hmm. you establish their characters and how you develop them through the show. Well,
1: well, when you're working on a Netflix show, as far as I get it so far, is that you have the text, not like a normal TV show uh, text. You have the script like you have a feature film, which means you know what's going to happen from beginning. By the time you say yes to a project, you know in eight episodes what the character is going to go through, what's the struggle, mm-hmm. and how he's gonna or he or she is gonna change. So you know all that. In Turkish dramas, the weekly soap operas, I would say, that they start on with a basic idea of thirteen episodes in their mind, but roughly, and they get along and do tweaks on the way, uh, depending on the viewers. A feedback mm-hmm. like the ratings, like you a know, course
0: correction kind yes, of Yes,
1: like that they, they do they do corrections on the go, so that sometimes ends up with a character finding out that she was schizophrenic uh, at the end of episode thirty nine, where the actress who plays the character didn't know about this for the thirty eight, right, right, right. you know, uh, episode. So in when you take this kind of uh, funny real reality and apply it to my uh, profession. As a director, like in future films, I know what I'm gonna shoot when and how way before I shoot the movie. So, that's the same advantage in a Netflix show that you, you get to prepare with the actors like you do in a future film. Almost uh, half of the script was, uh, almost half of the script was rehearsed on location before we shot it. So it was pretty much like a feature film. It's like a dream thing coming true. You Mm -hmm. cannot consider this as a TV show. You cannot do rehearsals on location with the actors, having the text in their hand. Sometimes the text comes one day before in Turkish uh, dramas. Not that I shot one. This is my first Mm -hmm. uh, TV show, if you call it TV. Uh, I didn't do, uh, apart from feature films and commercials, I didn't do TV series, so, but I know how the things go. So the actor receives the text on the night before, he, she remembers it on the night or in the morning at mm-hmm. their van, and then they come on to the set, what can a director or an actor can do then to make them properly be told, uh, the, the, the the sentences be told. So. I think we had a huge advantage of having the script and the preparation before. And of course, having my Dreamcast, this was my first choice uh, names. All Mm -hmm. the names here was my first names that I went uh, to Netflix as like these are my first choices. Of course, we had backup names, uh, sure, but uh, all my first choices uh, was was confirmed, so that's also an advantage that you get to work with a lot of great actors with a great pre-production time.
0: Was that one of the advantages of working with Netflix? Then that you, it's such a huge brand name, Netflix. That when you suggested to the actors, "Hey, we're doing this Netflix show," it's I, gonna be it everywhere. Made, that yeah, I think tempting project for them.
1: I think it made it made an effect. I don't know if it will be like this in the next projects to come because once they produce. 10 to 9, you know, uh, projects a year, it will basically be feeling for the actors living in Turkey, like a TV channel, national TV channel, which produces some shows. Mm -hmm. Right now it's, you know, a kind of fresh, Mm -hmm. so everyone is tempted to be in part of it, but later on, I feel like because they're creating these good connections with uh, Turkish market, Mm -hmm. very, very strong connections, So I think they might feel like a local company, which might be an advantage uh, to supply uh, scripts and new shows and new ideas, but also might be uh, of their disadvantage because of uh, people just acting like one of uh, those shows that they resist to do or they want to do. Uh, you know, like so. It, you're saying it, it it the, the
0: novelty of working with for Netflix is like a draw now.
1: I think yeah. Somewhere around this time, it's it's coming to an end. Now we need to set new terms of working with uh, international platforms. Mm-hmm. Not only Netflix, the others are coming. Uh, one this year or next year, I don't know, but. We hear uh, news uh, that there, the other platforms are interested in Turkish market. So I think we need to build a new way of language, uh, than being fresh for the market. Sure. Like let's talk business and how we do this. How do how do we do this now in the worldwide uh, aspect?
0: I think it's something that's not really appreciated by people in Europe and America that Turkish television has this incredible reach like all over the world. I recently did an interview with Fatma Buto who wrote a book about Turkish television, yeah. K-pop and um, and Bollywood and she's saying like it's an it's incredible how in the last sort of decade Turkish television has gone from being quite regional and now it's you can get it in Korea, you can people watching it in Lebanon, you've exactly. got people watching it in Peru. So I was I was curious to think what what do you think is it about Turkish television that catches audience around the world so successfully?
1: I think there are two things to mention about this. Uh, w- one is, uh, I think. Well, I don't really know what is the essence that is uh, getting all these interests all around the world. Because if I knew the you know formula, I would be you know creating many of those. So I'm not really sure what is it that ticks mm-hmm. people. Uh, obviously, there is something that other countries don't have mm-hmm. um my take on it is this in-betweenness that we have like uh, there's a nice um saying i think it was uh, muratan mungan uh one of these prominent writers uh, living in turkey right now uh, muratan has said turkey is like a bridge B- bridge is something nothing similar to the other edges, like it's something in between it's neither west, it's neither east it's it's something in between as it is, it is something in between and there's nothing to compare mm-hmm. or there's nothing that it has similarities with so I kind of like that analogy I, I think Turkey by itself stands alone by being stuck in east-west culture you know, freedom but in terms of family and religion and uh you know uh, these uh, traditional values but also modernism but in the terms of this heritage and anatolian uh roots so it's like uh, n- neither nor you know like so i think in in between this creates this big drama tension and i think there are also the financial reasons we create 120 minutes of a show mm-hmm. in a week, in six days. I mean, my friends, I don't, but my friends do it. So, and when you are from another country, you buy that 120 minutes and you slice it to the three days and now you have a content of a one show that we release a week.
0: My next question was kind of related to this. Unlike other Turkish TV shows which have done really well worldwide, yeah. but were basically built for the Turkish markets, and then got successful outside of Turkey. I feel that Atiye was built with an international audience in mind. Mm-hmm. So, with was there a different approach mm. to the construction of Atiye than there was to other <coughs> TV shows um, made in Turkey?
1: Uh,
0: in, in that you were trying to find a, this was specifically going to be targeted to an international audience in addition to the Turkish market.
1: I think when the writers approached the project, there was nothing, like that in their mind but i think when netflix confirmed they had they had it in mind like that there is there is a there is an international audience potential to this story mm-hmm. so i think basically the foundation of the project was what they thought it had already so on the way like when we were writing it or when we were producing it we didn't have anything in mind like okay are we doing it for the Turkish market or we're doing it for Netflix and Netflix is a platform that has 150 million subscribers all around the world whatever you know these huge numbers I'm not mm-hmm. really uh, I, I'm not really uh, well informed about it but you know what I mean like you're you're producing it for this context so by the by the time you have the context it already tells you you're producing it, next to House of Cards.
0: Right, right, yeah. And you've got to share a lineup with like Marvel TV shows and all these other things. Exactly, just...
1: so you're already there, either you like it or not. So when you approach your, uh, you know, material, but I think in the material, to give you my insight about it, I think there was this Turkish soap opera-like a melodramatic structure mm-hmm. that people who liked uh, Beren Saad in other shows might catch something, but meanwhile also get this uh, mystical and thriller approach of Netflix shows. So there was like nice balance of uh, Turkish drama meets Netflix kind of structure. So I I really, I was also drawn into that when I read the script. I said, oh, they have a nice idea right there. That was what I thought. I would call
0: the story a magic realist story. I think it's probably the closest genre that I could think of, which is a genre that I have a a lot of love for. But it's a tricky genre to get right, Mm -hmm. because if you go too far into it being obscure and weird, people lose patience with it, and they get frustrated at not having Mm -hmm. solid answers. But equally, if you give away too much of what's actually going on, you ruin the trick. So yeah. talk to me about how you found a balance between mm. giving the audience information about what's going on and also keeping things vague and cloudy and mysterious.
1: Well, there was there was a lot of discussions between me and the creators of the show. Like we, we had a lot of, uh, you know, sessions about the tone of the show. And from the start they were, they, they wanted, uh, they knew what they wanted in terms of reality. Mm-hmm. they they were really keen on asking for me what they want as grounded so the one of the words were grounded like mm-hmm. whatever we deliver in the show visually and story wise will be grounded it would feel grounded we don't want anything that goes too uh, way off top to the fantastical you know uh, fantasy world they were into the uh, realism mm-hmm. of the idiom. Uh, they were into the realism. Me, myself, what I took from it was, I said, all right, so we're talking about realism here, but there is a lot of mystical elements, like how do we approach this? Then we approach it through Atier's point of view. So I I decided to keep everything on Atier's watch, like Atier's eyes, how she perceives the world, So, whatever Atiyah sees, we see it. If Atiyah mm-hmm. doesn't see it, we don't see it. Sometimes there are hallucinations, sometimes there are real mm-hmm. events, but it's true Atiye's eyes, we get that. And the other uh, key word was spooky. That was also one of the words I came up with when they say grounded. I said, okay, grounded, but why do I watch the show? Because it's spooky, it gives you the, you know, uh, goosebumps one way or another. Yeah. So I was really after that kind of uh, uh, foggy tone of reality. Sure,
0: it's I mean because it never quite gets into like outright horror at yeah. any point. Though yeah. There are a few kind of like tenser moments mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. Cool. Nice. I mean, so my biggest critique of the show, that I, the part that I didn't like so much, is I was hoping for some more real history mm-hmm. in there as well. There's yeah. a little bit, but there's um, yeah, not as much as I might have liked, yeah. given the the true ne- Neolithic history of the site. Yeah. So um, how did you decide which, which bits of the real history you, you were going to use and which bits you weren't going to use?
1: I mean, since I'm not the showrunner and mm-hmm. I, I wasn't the one calling the shots about what to put in and what to leave out, uh, our take was mostly about creating a fictional world that doesn't have any connections with reality. We wanted to draw a line that is so far from reality mm-hmm. that none of discussions can touch us because, you know, we talk with a uh, lot of archaeologists mm-hmm. uh, at the site. Uh, off the set, on the set, we had uh, archeologist friends who were helping us, and what I got through all that discussions on a on a dramatic level, like as a director who wants to tell stories on a uh, on a platform of uh, you know archaeological realities, I realized that uh, one of the one of the archaeologists friends told us, he said, you know, no matter what you uh, say none of the meaning will be uh, infinite. Like there's an infinite versions of stories that we can tell even at this moment, looking at the things that we already Mm -hmm. know. So even uh, our friends who are uh, specifically concentrated on these subjects cannot come up to the ending meaning. Who are we to, you know, draw a line about Göbekli Tepe? I think that was our kind of stance. Mm-hmm. That we, we we didn't want to have a little bit. We didn't want it at all. So the truth about it is there. There's a there's a site which is twelve thousand years ago, uh, based twelve thousand years ago. Of course, given the time of all the information, all those guys gathering that information to make those uh, monumental um, uh, location, uh, we just have that as a reality and. For some it says that it's the oldest temple, mm-hmm. for some it's a market, we don't even mention that, but for some it's a marketplace because of being where the crossroads are, uh, happen to be. So but, yeah. reading, reading of history one way or another uh, at our times, if you don't have a you know, concrete uh, proof is all speculations, and by the time you create these speculations, one way or another, you become political uh, for the time for the zeitgeist. I'm not meaning the daily newspaper mm-hmm. politi- politics, but it also involves the daily newspaper politics. But I mean it like by the time you start saying, Okay, this is our take on Tepe," you need to you know make sure you know more. Where in our case, we just had a story to tell based on Anatolia, and De Tepe happened to be a good reason and a good location to base the story on. So we just left it at that. We didn't even want to cross a little bit more. We wanted to have a vague and uh, distanced storytelling to the realities of history because by the time you step in you're lost in the sea of all that information and knowledge sure. so that was kind of the, a, a decision we made on purpose
0: I mean, it, it, to, I, mean I, could, I could see the argument that by just kicking the issue of the real history away almost it better to like step away from it entirely than attempt to deal with these complex historical arguments and get it wrong Yeah. I think there's a certain sense in that
1: yeah, I mean, because you're doing a fictional uh, series, we're not doing Ottoman Rising. You know, mm. Ottoman Rising comes up as a docudrama, so right. there has to be a documentary reality involved in a docudrama. Whereas we have a magical realism. What is that? Yeah, uh, you exactly. Know, what's I mean. that? Like even with the magic, where you can go. You know, you, there's a lot of uh, lot of uh, imp- implications to the word. Sure.
0: Okay. Um, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about the show that I haven't asked you about?
1: Well, hmm, nice. Uh, no, I think, you know, uh, I'm, I'm happy to be uh, talking about Atiye, uh and I'm happy to be a part of the show and something that is created from here to travel around the world. I think it's very exciting, so... Um, being it Atiye makes me just happy and I don't know if anything else that I would like to talk about. This is all all good. Any info on season two? <laughs> Actually, you know, wh- what I can say is these platforms that are breaking the dimension of wh- for who you produce mm-hmm. is the new thing I I believe. Like we can elaborate on that just a second. Like we as the Turkish storytellers, now yeah. we... Drop the Turkish part, and Mm -hmm. we just become storytellers. In one sense, of course, where you're coming from, who you are, is a part of the story you tell. But the passport is no longer one way or another uh, uh, obstacle for me to tell good stories.
0: And actually, and that's that's what that's really true as well with with Netflix. In that, for possibly the first time, maybe not the first time ever. In, but certainly in Europe and in the United States you've got a Turkish television show sitting there alongside all the big American productions, big yeah. British productions, Japanese anime and it's kind of exciting to see that for the first time it's kind of on the same level rather than being sort of obscure and something that people had to seek out. Good so that's to, certainly a positive. Good
1: to hear that. As a just a little anecdote like a story I was reading uh, a year after Hakam Moffus the protector came up. Mm-hmm. I was reading an interview uh, or a talk I think I was I was reading a talk that was made with one of the head guys of Netflix in mm-hmm. London in the summit of you know all these production uh, things are happening. So the, the guy from Netflix was saying we're looking for storytellers from different parts of the world and I was like okay you know this is something everyone tells so Mm -hmm. there's nothing new for me and he said he said we have 700 projects this year and hundreds of them are going to be non-english speaking yeah so that got me tempted i said okay hundreds of them will be non-english speaking and you have casa de papel incident Mm -hmm. which is like one of the most watched shows of netflix and then i realized okay if there's hundreds non-English speaking projects, at least one of them will be directed by me. So I get. I, I took the phone and called my friends saying, you know, are you still interested in working with me to my producer friends? And that's how I got involved. So, you know, a, from a talk in London uh, on a world scale production level, uh, a Turkish storyteller gets influenced and gets tempted to be a part. So I think the world is getting smaller in this sense and that's a good thing.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, I can't, it's, I, I don't watch a huge amount of TV but it is fun to be able to see like a Dutch show and a French show and a Korean p- program and right. something from Turkey all together in one place.
1: I think right now, you know, yesterday, uh, Bonjour Bonjour got, got the uh, best picture award uh, in, in yeah, Academy Par- Parasite, Awards. I think, I think uh, this is the, this is the, also the effect of the platforms now, like even Academy Awards ne- Men like realized that they need to look out of the, out of their world, mm-hmm. to the other storytellers to give Academy Awards for. Sure, yeah,
0: I think that's a pretty good note to end on. So, Cheers. Um, thank you very much for joining me. It's been interesting. It was nice. Thank you. Cool. That was Ozan Adjikhan. Many thanks to him. I liked year a lot. Um. But as came through in our, our discussion, I was a little disappointed that there wasn't more real history in the show, because the real history of W. Kotepe is absolutely fascinating. It's one of the most interesting sites in the world. Um, let me tell you something about myself. Um, I studied history at university, um, but I didn't really look very much into Copicletepe when I was studying it. Um, My courses were all much more recent history. When you study history or archaeology, at some point you have to take a pottery module where you learn how to date sites by identifying various fragments of pot that you find on location. I personally never found it particularly interesting, but one of the things I found when I was researching Göbekli Tepe was just a line in a in a paper that said it's impossible to date Göbekli Tepe by looking at pottery fragments because there are no pottery fragments because the site predates the discovery of pottery. And that's wild. That's that's so old it's it's absolutely fascinating. So I'm really, really happy to be joined by Dr. Lee Clare, the coordinator of research and field work at Gobi Kotepe, to talk about the site. The first question I want to ask you is actually, um, given that the site is so ancient, so important, emotionally, what's it like to work on such an important project? That's a big question, obviously.
2: I mean, um, I think for anyone, uh, any academic or archaeologist looking at the Neolithic period, Gobekli Tepe is a non-part plus ultra of, of sites. I mean, um, you know, obviously from uh, the media attention it's received in the past few months or a year or so, that the site is um, particularly significant with regard to the development of the Neolithic. You know, this period when people became, or changed from hunter-gathering to a, sort of farming way of life and uh, for this crucial period in, in history in in prehistory you could say um it's it's a very important site it's giving us really insights into uh, not only how the people were
0: living at the time but also into their, their thinking could you start off by giving me an idea um what would anatolia have looked like in the period of gobekli tepe would we recognize it today or would it or would it have been completely different
2: okay well i'm not a specialist for like paleo-environment, but at least um, I can tell you that you know, there weren't any big cities, obviously. Um, I mean, this is a period where we have smaller groups, perhaps 150, 200 people, perhaps a few more, um, living in, in first sedentary settlements. Um, but of course the Neolithic is very long. It's a long period. It starts you know back in the early Holocene, which is like you know, 10, 11, 12,000 years ago. We have this first development to, uh, you know, with people becoming sedentary, and starting to really collect wild crops um, and hunt. Um, and then that progresses on uh, through, you know, four, five, six millennia, um, when, you know, in, in around 7,000, we have pottery come in. So it's a, it's, it's a lot of, we speak about the Neolithic package, where we have different packages, different parcels coming in at different times through the millennia, which then at the end of the day, you know, around you know, 6,000, have culminated then in this sort of developed Neolithic
0: um uh, subsistence-oriented lifestyle. I see. and the site itself, I mean f- when we look at the site itself today you can see the circles of stones, the bigger stones in the middle. Um, I understand the structures would have been would have been roofed or covered. It's, it, what, would, what would the site itself have looked like at the time? Well that's that's the thing. I mean
2: things have been changing at the site in the past two or three years. we've had uh, uh, new shelters, permanent shelters uh, constructed for the protection of the monument. And in the course of this uh, construction work of course we had to do deep soundings in the site um, to anchor those um, provide foundations for these for these shelters. And of course that involved actually doing these deep soundings through the entire mound, as it were, to the underlying bedrock to, you know, to drill in the, the, um, the supports and the foundations. and that gave us the unique opportunity to see the lowest levels of the site and different you know, phases of the site because of course, the Gebeti Tepe is what's called a huyuk, it's a settlement mound, which accumulated over millennia, in fact, 1,500 years, uh, as we now think, from around 9,500 to about 8,000 BC, and when you settle on the same spot the whole time, and you have this accumulation of sediments, mm-hmm. of, or archaeological deposits, at the end of the day you have what's what we call a huyuk, or a tepe, um, which is one of these settlement mounds, you see them quite frequently around, uh, uh, in a lot of places, especially in, in southeastern in Turkey, but also all over Turkey and into the Balkans. Um, so. Uh, This enabled us to really see, for the first time, we had new sort of uh, results from these deep soundings Uh, and for the first time we could actually see that people at the site, at Gobeti Tepe, weren't just coming there for ritual purposes, as has been propagated previously, Mm -hmm. but were actually living there as well. So the site would have been a settlement, Um, it would have had houses obviously, Um, it would have had these special buildings. We refer to them as special buildings, not temples, because temple mm-hmm. is, is more or less an interpretation yeah. that I don't want to use in, in this respect. I
0: believe your predecessor and referred to them as a sanctuary, didn't he? Yeah,
2: sanctuary or, or temple, or, you know, this sort of thing. Always this sort of clear religious connotation. And I think um, for us now, we're trying to get away or step back from this interpretive sort of uh, vocabulary, as it were, and use more neutral terms. So we're referring to special buildings, buildings, structures. Um, so you know we have uh, eight of these so-called special buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, they differ from the domestic buildings in that they have these monumental sort of monolithic T-shaped pillars. And um, these, that's correct, would have been roofed over. They were buildings. They weren't open sort of circles of stones, standing standing stones like Stonehenge. Yeah, that's because
0: that's what when you say s- s- stone circle, you mm-hmm. instantly go to Stonehenge. Exactly,
2: and it's not that they are buildings. They were probably roofed over. Um, they had entrances. Uh, they they weren't open to the elements, as it were. So um, quite different. Uh, there's always been a lot of discussion whether they had a roof or not, even at the time when, when Klaus Schmidt was working there. Um, but now you know we're we're seeing that these special buildings were an integral part of this of the domestic settlement, and of course they were playing a certain role within that. Um, I think. Obviously I want to avoid the religious sort of connotations, mm-hmm. but of course rituals would probably have taken place in there, but it would been more than that, it would have, they would have been social meeting points I think. And that's really um, emphasised by, by what we're seeing engraved on, on the stones, the, the set up and the layout of the buildings. I think that all speaks in favour of a more social sort of gathering point rather than just this sort of ritual purpose that's
0: been uh, proposed in the past. So, I'm curious about this idea that it was a settlement as well, because in some of the literature I was reading in preparation for this, it was saying that, if, that there wasn't some of the obvious markers of a settlement, like there wasn't any water, they were struggling to find, I believe, waste pits, was what they were looking for. So, what lay out the evidence that it was a, a settlement and, a, and not just a, a, like a sanctuary? You're quite right. I mean, one of the main
2: um, arguments against the settlement at the site um, was lack of water. So, we we're on a limestone plateau on a hilltop. Um, so there's no flowing water in that respect, no, no streams as we as, or sources of, of water as far as we know. Perhaps in the past there were you know natural springs up there, but we don't know about that at the moment. Um, but what we do have is, and it's been known for quite a while, is a series of systems um, across the plateau um, with carved sort of channels leading to them. So they, the people would have been actually um, uh, harvesting the rainwater, in fact. I mean, at this time in the early Holocene, 11,000 years ago, I think we could have probably would have had uh, more precipitation down there than the present, mm-hmm. perhaps even with summer, summer rainfall. And they were actually harvesting this rainwater and storing it in these systems, um, various sizes. Um, and, and of course, that would be one solution to the lack of water. Um, and of course, the other thing that was missing uh, the whole time was just the, the domestic structures themselves. The focus um, of earlier work up to about you know, 2014 was always on these big special buildings and the big T pillars um, and what was perhaps, they paid less attention to the, to the domestic sort of uh, thing and we do have domestic structures now that, that were discovered earlier but weren't recognised as such perhaps and now we can see that we do have a significant domestic occupation at the site so people were living there uh, and building special buildings as well at the time and of course um, what people tend to forget is that the site was long lived, years. Um, so it's a, you know it's really accumulation of different deposits and different buildings from that whole entire period. So the whole
0: mound would not probably not been settled at one time. I see. So when you say the settlement, was it a permanent settlement or was this a place where migratory people came, stayed for certain seasons and then moved away again? <clears throat> well, that's also
2: difficult to say. I mean that's something that we're looking at sure. at the moment. Um, but of course at the time you know we're we're talking eleven thousand years ago. These were sort of what have been referred to as sort of complex hunter-gatherers. I mean, they weren't farming, they had no domestic animals, they had no domesticated crops. They were harvesting or collecting wild weeds, they were hunting. Um, And um, of course, we do think that they were probably semi-sedentary, if not permanently sedentary at the site. But of course, that is something we're looking into. We need to look at the, the, the remains that we've actually uncovered in the recent years to actually go deeper into that. To see if there are indications for all year round presence at the site, and you know you can do that by looking, for example, the animal bones, um, of you know gazelles hunted quite frequently. So we know, for example, they were at the site quite frequently, or were at the site in in, in the autumn time because of the the ages and the sizes of the of the uh, the animals, of the gazelles that were hunted. So there are various indications that we can look at to actually um
0: get evidence for all year occupation, and that's what we're doing at the moment. I see. So let's. The T-pillars are obviously the most famous and, and I say, iconic part of the site. Um, they're carved in various different ways. I think some of them are human representations, whereas some of them are just the carvings of various animals. Um, what can we learn by looking at the carvings on the T-pillars?
2: Okay, I mean, the T-pillars are actually all T-shaped. Um, and the T-shape has been interpreted in the past, and it still is uh, interpreted as a very... Um, yeah, it represents a human form. So the top of the T is the head mm-hmm. and the shaft of the pillar is, is a body. And that's best, um, Best we can see that best on on the two pillars uh, from building D I think we're referring to, which we have, where well, we have low reliefs of uh, belts and loincloths, mm-hmm. arms, hands, um, necklaces. So from this, we actually then um, can say that even though the other T pillars don't have these attributes carved onto them, um, we can say um, that they probably all were representations of the human form, of human beings of mythological human beings perhaps What we can we learn from them of course is I mean a whole lot of stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Now if you look at the carvings on, on the pillars, uh, a few of them, they're not all decorated obviously but a lot of them do have depictions of wild animals, um, frequently uh, you know, we see things like fox uh, the um, wild pig, aurochs, um, or so or wild cattle. And these were obviously important animals at the time. They were hunted, obviously, at the time. Um, but it's not just them depicting the animals they were seeing in the natural environment around the site. Um, what we see is they're placed in certain orders. Um, they're, they're, they're telling stories. So what we have here, actually, is more of a narrative that's being told, a narrative carved into stone onto the T pillars. Um, now, what that narrative is, it's we can't obviously interpret it now or translate it, we can only sort of make an academic sort of educated guess of what's being said here. And I think the the, the consensus at the moment is that, you know, we're looking at uh, probably myths, mm-hmm. mythological stories, you know, tales of perhaps foundation myths, um, which are being actually represent or, or depicted on the T-pillars. Now, this is really, really important because apart from, say, the the... Um, the caves in France, Spain, the painted you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. caves like Lascaux. Um, this is the first time we're seeing something like this. But the difference between Lascaux and the cave sites and Göbekli Tepe is Göbekli Tepe is a is a built structure. It's not a natural phenomenon. It's not a cave. It's not something natural. It's a built structure by humans. So for the first time, they're depicting their narratives on a on a structure which they built, perhaps even for that purpose. Um, so that's very important. So what we have here are the probably the oral narratives, probably going back well before Gobekli Tepe from the Paleolithic period, which for the first time now are being sort of carved in stone and preserved now for us, you know, 12, 13,000 years later. So this is really unique. And this is, I think, one of the reasons that the site, or is one of the reasons that the site was inscribed on the UNESCO World Heritage List because it is really giving us a glimpse into this hunter-gatherer tradition, uh, previous or pre-Neolithic, which is really uh, quite you know, outstanding. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, would they have been painted? They would have been using colour, I think. I mean, we do have pillars where we do have sort of remnants of, of, of mm-hmm. colour, possibly. I mean, this has to be looked at in more detail, but I think ochre would have been used. We have finds of ochre from the site, so they were using at least red colour and I think other colours would have been used as well. You shouldn't actually, when you go to the site, you see these grey stones. I don't think you should be sort of imagining these stones as, as looking like that at the time. I think they would have, you know, carried colour, they would have probably been adorned with various uh, things, um, you know, perhaps eaten leathers or you know, uh, animal skins, etc. So um, I
0: think it would be wrong to sort of imagine that the site just like it is now, obviously. Because of course people make the same mistake with imagining ancient Greece, they imagine like white marble everywhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When it would have and I think the
2: same applies to, to Gobekli Tepe. So these would have been quite, you know, and if you imagine these were closed buildings and you go into this building. Obviously, it would have been quite dark, probably. Perhaps there have been some shafts for light or whatever. But you know, you would have gone in there with your torch, um, you know, and, and uh, you would have seen these these uh, wonderful carvings. Some of which are, you know, a lot of them are showing, bearing their teeth. Like mm-hmm. it's been argued, that sort of making it's a way of instilling fear into the people that enter the buildings. Mm. That's an interpretation. But um, obviously, it'd been quite impressive to anyone that would have entered these buildings at
0: the time. For sure, um, they're impressive to look at now. Um, now Klaus Schmidt hypothesized that this was a there was some sort of death cult here and I don't want to like over dramatize that but it was a the, the the buildings were part of funeral arrangements and the, there's been suggested that the vultures on the statues represent that and I believe more recently there's been some skull fragments which kind of maybe support this hypothesis. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, death cult
2: I mean, it's part of everyday life. Like life, death—it's just part of, of something that happens uh, on a daily basis. And of course, I think death would have played a role uh, in these special buildings. But the question is, were these buildings, were these monuments really dedicated to to death solely? I don't think so. Um, you've mentioned the skull fragments now, important for the this early Neolithic period, um, the so-called pre-pottery Neolithic that we're talking about now. Um, the yeah. You know, it's, it's evident also from the scar fragments that we have um, that the ancestors were playing a certain role in, in society. The, ancestors, the, uh, the knowledge of the ancestors, I think, is a very important thing that we have to mention here. Uh, you mentioned the scar fragments. We think that these are also an indication of perhaps um, ancestor veneration. Um, of course, the burial traditions at the time usually uh, saw the, the, the dead person actually buried beneath the floor of the, of the house or around the walls of the house or very close to the domestic mm-hmm. area and not in a separate sort of uh, um, burial ground. Um, so the, the dead were kept very close to the living. And what happened to certain individuals, um, now, I don't know what the criteria were for, for this choice, but certain individuals, their skull was exhumed from the grave. Um, was, they didn't wait too long um, because they had to clean it. Obviously there was still skin attached uh, and, and hair probably and they actually scraped it with a flint blade and we have scratch marks on certain fragments of skull. The fragments from, we have a few fragments from Gobekli Tepe which have deep grooves. Now we think these grooves may have been actually made in order to hold um, like a string or a cord um, which would, would be needed to actually keep a skull together. So if you don't have a, you know, a cord around it, the bottom jaw would perhaps drop mm-hmm. off. Um, but also these cords could have been used to attach decorative elements. So they were actually decorating the skulls of certain individuals, and these probably would have been displayed perhaps in these special buildings. So the ancestor obviously played a very important role. And even the pillars themselves could be depictions of those ancestors. Um, if we think about the mythology and the foundation myths that I mentioned earlier, I mean, the whole thing is geared towards, um, I think, keeping the group together, because of course, if you think about the, the, um, the context of Gobekli Tepe, actually being constructed um, at a time when we have this transition from hunter-gathering to um, farming, you know, they're going through a lot of change. This is something quite new, cognitive, uh, you know. It, Things are changing in the human brain, at least you know, because they were moving from very small groups, and these groups were expanding over time. If you're sedentary, the group gets bigger. You have more, you know, children. Um, you lose track of who's who, um, and and you have her you know, split off groups, and and, mm-hmm. um, and for that reason, I think they had to find a way of keeping that group or the identity of the group together. And one way of doing that was, I think, to actually show this uh, these myths, these tales that they had, on stone you know, on a permanent basis, um, to actually sort of. Uh, group uh, belonging to a certain group. So that's what I think we're seeing, so I think the ancestors played a key role in that. So although I'm not saying that the the monuments or the buildings, the special buildings of the Bekiteba, were dedicated to the dead or stemmed from a death cult, I think that death and ancestors played a very important role
0: in these structures. Okay, so the traditional thinking when looking at these ancient societies has been that Agriculture comes first, and monumental architecture comes second. Now, Gobekli Tepe very much upsets that theory. Um, in what way is is, it, is this a unique thing that's happening in Gobekli Tepe, or is that original idea? Does that ori- original idea work in other places, or yeah. Well, um, I mean, this was this was a big uh,
2: sort of uh, thing when Gobekli Tepe first came out. So you know, it's you know, in Uba Harari's the, in, book, in, for example. Yeah, for example, in the nineteen ninety mid nineteen nineties. When Gebeki was rediscovered, it was actually discovered in the nineteen sixties in the course of survey work, and then was more or less forgotten until mid nineteen nineties when Klaus Schmidt returned. And when he went in there, he found these uh, these um, buildings, these special buildings with this you know, with this, this monolithic sort of architecture. Um, the he proposed that, um, and this is based on, on work previously done by by Jakover, that possibly that the the gods came first, and then after that. Uh, you know, the civilization domestication, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, the argument being that in order to construct buildings of this type, such significant, you know, massive projects, um, they would have need to actually provide the people with victuals, with you know food and drink, and and that would have been a reason to actually you know push forward domestication. I see. Um, in order to um, you know, or uh, domestication was necessary, in fact, uh, to build these monuments. So in order to do that. You know, that happened, domestication.
0: Um. And as you know, if people are living around there. For example, the way that grain tends that we that we uh, that we think grain works is that like people were just scattering grain as they went around harvesting it naturally, and then it started growing in like clusters, and people started noticing that it grew in clusters, and then started agriculture. And if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're sort of suggesting is that because people were coming here anyway, these sort of, for example, clusters of grain that would become farming built up around the site. Have I got that right? Well, I mean, the environment around Quebecli Tepe is actually full of
2: natural or wild grasses, and that would have been there anyway. That would have been a resource that they would oh, I using. Um, but the argument being, in fact, that they intensified this in order to feed the, the, the workmen to build these monuments, uh, thus leading, uh, you know, religion you know, then leading to the domestication. Um, so that was the argument put forward by by Klaus Schmidt based on work uh previously done by, by Jacques Corvin. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, but you know now I'm I'm seeing it I mean you've got to look at the context again. I think it would be wrong to give this function or this sort of you know it's like a sm- as a smoking gun of mnemotisation would be mm-hmm. wrong in my opinion. Like I said earlier, the nematization was a very long drawn out process starting back in the Paleolithic when we had first century communities. And, and progressing right you know into the into the seventh millennium as it, as it were. So uh, a long drawn out process and it, it is factually not right to give this, you know, this this credit to one particular site. I see. Uh furthermore, Gebekite is not the only T site and this is not known by a lot of people. It is one of the like fifteen or sixteen sites, Tipila sites known from the Shan of the region. Mm-hmm. Um it's one of four that have now seen excavation, mm-hmm. the first being Navalichori which was excavated in the 1980s um, by Hauptmann, and also Klaus Schmidt participated in that excavation that was an excavation undertaken by the Schamilhofer Museum and uh, the German Archaeological Institute. And, uh, then came Göbekli Tepe, and in the meantime we have excavations now going on at a site called Havetsu Antepesi um, by um, a Turkish colleague, Bahattin Celik, and also more recently at the site of Karahan Tepe, mm-hmm. which is um, also not far from Göbekli Tepe in the, in the Tektek mountains, um, currently under ex- excavation by um, Nezmi Kabul from the University of Istanbul. So we now have four sites, and the hope is that in the course of time we can actually compare the results of those four sites and, and really get deeper into the matter. Um, so and, and other sites are known from surface survey as well, um, you know, deeper sites were uh, quite frequent at this time,
0: Funny enough, only in the chamonix region. So that was going to be my next question anyway, was um, the Gobekli Tepe is not a standalone site, it is part of this kind of broader picture that's happening um, across the Fertile Crescent. No, right. um, so how does Gobekli Tepe fit into the larger picture? Of the region,
2: well, it's a network, obviously. I mean, if you look at the symbolism at a lot of these sites, I'm not just talking about the Shamwar or the Euphrates region, uh, which includes, you know, the Upper Euphrates or basin around Warfare um, uh, but also further south into northern Syria, a lot of uh, sites from this period. If you look further east in the Tigris region, we have a, a numerous sites, numerous sites from there that have been excavated, also, um, and those in the, in the course. Of you're aware of the dam projects going on and there, a lot mm-hmm. of salvage excavations going on, numerous sites excavated in that area um, from the same period. And they are actually sharing the same symbolism. Um, you know, you see a lot of the, the snakes and the various things carved on, on small finds at all of these sites. Um, although the Shana Uva sites are the only ones with the T pillars, funnily enough. Mm-hmm. The other sites do have pillars in their architecture, but they're not the T-shaped, they're not sort of as monolithic and, and, and uh, large and as, as we have at Gobekli Tepe. Um, so it's part of a network, and uh, and that network is actually part of a much broader network because of course the the was taking place over the whole sort of Fertile Crescent region. You know, if you go further south into Levant, you have other um, societies. Um, you have the Natufian Epipalaeolithic period mm-hmm. followed by the pre-pottery Neolithic there as well, and also in, in Iran, uh, Iran you know, they have uh, there are sites as well um, uh, there. So I mean, it's it's part of a larger network.
0: Um of of uh, at this time. So what exactly do you mean when you say network? I mean, are these people trading with each other, or I think are the they trade moving between? Too, them? Yeah, I think
2: trade goes a bit too far. I mean, obviously they're they're sharing ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, as we can see from the symbolism, at least in, in, in southeast Anatolia and, and uh, uh, northern parts of Syria, um, they are. You see similarities in, in architecture, mm-hmm. um, uh, obviously also in subsistence, um. But of course, you know, the thing is, with this picture um, of neutralization, things happen at different times, different places. It's not a sort of a linear sort of development. It's sort of, you know, there's a bit of, uh, it's more of a wavy line than a straight sort of upwards uh, sort of gradient of, of development. Um, but they would have had contact. I think the best example of the contact they would have had is through uh, materials like obsidian. Um, mm-hmm. Obsidian from Eastern Anatolian sources uh, more or less being passed down. Uh, you know, you find it, uh, as, you know, all over Anatolia and also down into the into Levant at this time. So that also testifies to at least movement of people. There was a lot of movement going on at this time. We shouldn't think of these people as being restricted to one sort of territory or whatever. But they were moving, and, and they would have had they would have been seafaring as well. I mean, we have the oh really the, uh, yeah sure. I mean, they we the earliest uh, settlements in, in in Cyprus were colonized from the mainland oh, from course. Anatolia, and, and they are the same date PPNA, and so tenth ninth millennium. Though Um, the sea would have been lower then,
0: wouldn't it? It would have been possibly easier to get to Yeah,
2: I mean, there would have been a certain amount of change, but most of that change would have happened by this time. Oh, I see. Um, um, Of course, uh, we have a lot of, uh, since then, we've had a lot of, uh, sort of, uh, erosion and various things, and, and, um, uh, but, uh, yeah, the sea level, I think, more or less would have been... more. Okay, so this is after, Um, like, the the big melting of the ice caps. the big melt, yeah, yeah. Um, So... Certainly, there are sites that are submerged from that period, but um, you know, plus minus, I think you know, I it wouldn't have been dramatic. Um, so that's that's important to know. You know, that these people were mobile. Um, they were using the waterways. They were using the sea. Um, they were obviously walking um, between settlements. They had activity zones around their own their own settlements. So you know, we shouldn't think of these people as being uh, simple or, or you know. Wild in a way. I mean, that's the vision mm-hmm. that yeah. a lot of people have. It's it's really quite wrong. You know, these people were modern humans. They had been for a long time, um, and and you know, if they'd been born today into our culture, they would have been just like you and me using you know, their mobile phones. Mm-hmm. Um, they were
0: physically the same, although not cognitively perhaps like that's so my my next question, kind of again, is is on the same lines, which is um, what are some misconceptions about Gobi Tepe that you'd like to correct? You've got an open open mic to correct a couple of a couple okay. of things that you think people misunderstand about the site. Well, I think the biggest thing
2: is the temple issue. I think it's just um, I'll tell you, it's misinformed to speak of these buildings as the world's first temples. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously that's going through the media, and I appreciate that that's one of the things that's used to attract attention and media attention to the site, and it's you know, valid, perhaps, in, in that way. But looking from an academic point of view, I would like to stress that you know the site, in my opinion, is not the site of the world's first temples. Um, you know, it's not the place where agriculture was born. Um, uh, for example, we do have no... Mm-hmm domestic animals, domesticated animals or crops, for example. So, uh, these things are the most important sort of messages I'd like to get across. Um, and also the, the the value of the site. Um, even though it's not this smoking gun uh, that a lot of people uh, have, have proposed, it does give you those insights into the human mind um, at this crucial transition uh, that was taking place at this time. Um, you know, these, these mythological, uh, these myths that are being told on the pillars, the the artwork I mean it is exceptional mm-hmm. the, the quality of the of the architecture um, these people were not you know they were developed they had a developed and uh, you know mind they were, were were working in teams or working in groups this brings us on to a social hierarchisation that sort of thing that's something that's you know discussed widely
0: uh, among colleagues I do have one thing that I just wanted to like clarify that why specifically is the word temple incorrect like I mean, it because it implies like priesthoods um votive offerings all sorts That's of right. other I mean, things
2: yeah I mean temple and temple economies uh in my opinion don't actually come onto the scene until like you know the, the bronze age or so I mean this is something that comes much later um it does imply you know, uh, priests implies an economic relationship between a, a domestic uh, site and, and a, a religious site. It implies gods, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't know whether we have or not. We have, I think, the ancestors, the ancestor veneration. Had Gabetitepa not actually been abandoned at the time, uh, perhaps these ancestors would have sort of progressed to become gods. Who knows? I suppose the line between but ancestor and gods is quite a fine it's one. It's a fine one. I mean, I, I really sort of hesitate, and I, I don't like using the term because it is too interpretative. Mm-hmm. Um so, and, and for that reason, you know, I, I would avoid actually using any vocabulary or any terms which push or, or project an interpretation onto something where we are actually not quite certain what was going on. Okay.
0: Um, so, for my last question, um, if I wanted to find out more about Gobikatepe, could you recommend some good documentaries or good books on it to, for, you know, a, gen- a general reader? A I general think reader. Um, from a
2: perspective of site discovery and, and also the, the research history of the site, I would have to sort of, uh, you know, recommend the works by Klaus by, um, Schmidt, mm-hmm. who you know, published a large amount of, 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 of stuff, I mean, uh, also academic stuff, but also his, his book, um, They Built the First Temples, Zubalpili Asht, temple, would be uh, something that I would take as a, as a first read, as it were. Um, more recently, of course, our work in the in the past three or four years, um, those results are just now being published in academic journals mm-hmm. and we are working on publications um, for a broader audience and those as I say are in, 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 in progress now and I think um, you know within a year or so those should be also available. Um otherwise I think the most important thing, if possible, would be to visit the site because sure. we have a fantastic information centre now. Um the information centre Has been opened uh, in the past year and a half, two years now, and we have a fantastic display. We have reconstructions, uh, we have uh, you know multimedia experiences. We have, and all this was designed. um, We were advising at that time, so the excavation team was involved in that process. So the information you have there is also up to date. Um, Those are the things that I would would really recommend uh, anyone listening to this uh, to do if they're interested in the site
0: that sounds good to me alright thank you very much for joining us you're very welcome All right. you having me. cool that's our show music was by Bethan Orman and DJ Neo find more music at djneo.net thanks to our guests Lee Clare and Ozan Ajiktan. this has been the Turkey Cast from Devar English give us a like share us with your friends and most importantly join us next time